Hello, everyone. This is Winter is Here, a podcast where we discuss how we arrived at the global battle between tyranny and democracy, and more importantly, how we can win. I'm your host, Uriel Epstein, executive director of RDI. My co-host Gary isn't here this week since he's giving one of the keynote speeches at TEDx, but I am joined by Pastor Ivan Mawarire. Ivan is the founder of the hashtag This Flag Citizen Movement in Zimbabwe, which brought millions of people onto the streets to confront corruption, injustice, and poverty, and was ultimately instrumental in unseating Robert Mugabe, the dictator. In 2016, Ivan was named the African of the Year by the Daily Maverick newspaper of South Africa and one of the 100 top global thinkers of 2016 by Foreign Policy magazine. Unfortunately, since then, Ivan has had to leave Zimbabwe for his own safety, but has served as a fellow at Stanford Center for Democracy Development and Rule of Law and was a 2020 Yale University World Fellow. Most importantly of all, I'm really excited to finally announce that Ivan is joining our DI as our inaugural Director of Education. Welcome, Ivan. Thank you so much for having me, Uriel. I am excited on so many fronts. First of all, to be on this podcast with you, to be joining RDI in the capacity you've just mentioned. And I think most importantly as well, to be participating in the global defense and fight for freedom. There is just no better time than right now to, to come out with everything we've got to stand together and to do what we can to save democracy. I certainly couldn't agree more. And so, Ivan, I kind of want to start with your own personal story. It's pretty incredible. You went from being the pastor of a small church in Harare, the capital of Zimbabwe, to building a popular movement that brought out millions of people to confront the dictatorship of Robert Mugabe and ultimately played a pretty big role in his ouster. Can you tell us how that came to be? You know, Uriel, every time I think about my story and my journey to where I am today, I always start by saying to people, you could never have paid me enough money to do what I did and to experience and encounter what I encountered to finally being where I am at today. And yet I would never trade any of it because of the worth and the value that it has brought to what I'm devoting my life to. But to give you a, an idea of my story, I was a pastor in Harare, as you have just mentioned, in Zimbabwe. And I was pastoring a very small church. And I think I just got to a place where Zimbabwe had gone through these cycles of economic crashes and political cycles of violence uh, so, so many times that I just, I didn't know what else to do for my family because now I was at a place where I couldn't provide for my own family, my two little daughters and my wife who was actually expecting. So I sat in my small office, I was completely frustrated at the situation. And I recorded a small video, a four minute video on my phone. And in this video, I held the Zimbabwe flag and I spoke about what that flag means, the meaning of the flag, the promise that is held within the meaning of the Zimbabwean flag of freedom for Zimbabweans, of prosperity for Zimbabweans. And I juxtaposed that meaning to what Zimbabwe had looked like for 37 years which was a nation that had become run down in terms of our economy, a nation that had abused its citizens to levels where the entire world had been horrified at things that had taken place in Zimbabwe. And so in this little video, I challenged the dictator at the time, Robert Mugabe, 
concerning the misgovernance. But I also began to talk to Zimbabweans about their role and what they needed to do to participate in saving Zimbabwe and in you know, saving our nation. That video went viral and it just literally developed a life of its own. And it led us over a series of videos that I then created after that first one, talking about what it means to participate in democracy, what it means to be a citizen in your own nation. And it led us to a point where the videos became campaigns. They became citizen campaigns asking for an address of injustice, asking for the address of the economic challenges in Zimbabwe. Those campaigns became protests. In fact, we called a protest in June of 2016. I'll never forget this because this is what really began the movement. And I called a protest. Again, I made a video and I said, the government is not listening to us. So I'm asking you wherever you are to take one day where we boycott our work, school, we don't go to work, we don't go to school, we don't open businesses, we stay at home and we shut the country down. It came from a place of not knowing what else to do. And I was shocked because over 9 million people in Zimbabwe listened to that call to action and the entire country came to a complete standstill. And it was a moment that began to show us what citizen power meant, what it meant to be united as a citizenry, what it meant to participate in your democracy. Of course, I was promptly arrested. As soon as that protest happened, within a few days, I was picked up from my house and I was arrested and I was charged with treason. During that arrest, I was subjected to torture. I was beaten. A lot of the things I went through are things that I still don't talk about today and that I'm still dealing with. But one of the most profound things that happened is that as I was being taken to court and I was being charged with treason, people began to gather at the courts. And it started off with just a few people and then it became a few hundred and then a couple of thousand. And it ended up by the end of the day, there was between eight and 9,000 people that had gathered at the courts with their flags, holding candles, and they were mounting a vigil. They were demanding that I be released or else they wouldn't leave. So eventually I was released that night and within a couple of hours, I escaped Zimbabwe into safety with my family and landed up in America and tasted freedom and safety with my family. And then a couple of months after we arrived in America, I decided that I needed to go back home to Zimbabwe. I believed that the work that we had begun was important. It was fledgling, but it needed to be carried on. We couldn't lose it. And so I packed my bags and kissed my family goodbye and left and went back to Zimbabwe. And immediately as I arrived in Zimbabwe in 2017, I'll never forget the date, it was the 1st of February 2017, immediately I was arrested at the airport before my passport could get stamped. I was taken in by the military intelligence and the police, and I was thrown into Chikurubi Maximum Security Prison. It's a notorious prison in Zimbabwe. And where I thought the first beatings were tough when I was arrested the first time, this was an introduction to to a brutality that I had only ever heard spoken about. The, and you have to forgive me, every time I think about it, 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 um, um, it, it chokes me up because you, you, you see a treatment of, of people that you don't ever think that other people can actually meet out to somebody else. Um, uh, so I endured uh, solitary confinement um, 
they beat the underside of my feet. Um, sometimes they would um, make me stand in an open space naked for hours on end. And um, at one point there was, um, us, uh, you know, um, it, it's hard to think that we, we come from nations that do this to ordinary citizens. And so I regretted at some point, I have to be honest that I regretted going back, that I should have stayed in safety. But part of what I encountered in that prison gave me a lot of hope because the prisoners I met in that place were intrigued by the work that I was doing, what I had started, they had heard about it. And I found that amazing that even in prison, they had heard about it. And there were prisoners in there that encouraged me, that said to me, listen, you have to keep going. Our families are outside and we don't know what else we can do for them. And we have hope in what you and the other citizens are doing for our families. That showed me how important the work of struggling for democracy is. And so I was released a couple of weeks after my arrest out on bail and went straight back into doing the work that I had been doing before. You'd think that after the kind of torture and the kind of abuse I went through that one would stop. But I seemed to find a sense of purpose and a sense of seeing why it's important to give one's life to something that is as important as that to so many people. And so we carried on for the rest of that year, 2017. We did more protests. We did more campaigns. We did more of asking about the injustice, the corruption, and the poverty in Zimbabwe. And I would be arrested another, I think it was another four times during 2017. I landed up back in prison another four or five times. And I had another three charges thrown on top of the original charges of treason. So I landed up with about almost 80 years of prison that I was facing if I was to be found guilty. But something amazing happened in that year, 2017. And it was that ZANU-PF, which is Robert Mugabe's party, the dictator, began to implode. And immediately we took advantage of that as citizens and we began to demand that Robert Mugabe steps down. And there was a lot happening in the country. The military began to get involved as well. But as Zimbabweans, we saw an opportunity that we thought we never would see in our lives, which was Robert Mugabe being confronted by everyone at the same time. And so we mobilized people to go on the streets. Millions came out across the country. And by November of 2017, unbelievably, Robert Mugabe stepped down. This is a man who had ruled the country for 37 years. He was 93 years old and had declared he was dying in office. And so to see him step down was a euphoric moment for us, for me, for the citizens. And we believed that the very next step was going to be a better Zimbabwe. It wouldn't take much to do better than what Robert Mugabe had done. It wouldn't take much to open up spaces of freedom. It wouldn't take much to deal with corruption because Robert Mugabe had taken us to the depths of it. I mean, Uriel, imagine this. In 2008, Zimbabwe's economy crashed so badly that we ended up with a $100 trillion note. Just think about that. $100 trillion. I don't even know how many zeros that is. On one note, exactly. They had the audacity to put that many zeros on one note and still expect that citizens would be okay with it. And guess what? We were okay with it because that's what oppression does to people. It makes you comfortable with an abnormal level of abuse. 
So Robert Mugabe steps down. The citizens' movement is euphoric. Many people are excited at seeing this moment. And the worst thing happens. The military takes over. They install their man. And Zimbabwe gets worse. I mean, I, I have never been more... I, I just I don't know how to explain it, whether it was a disappointment or sad or angry. But it was such a moment of just being let down. And so the country became worse. In 2018, Zimbabwe went to elections and the new president who took over after he rigged the elections openly and citizens began to protest, which is what we are allowed to do with by our constitution. He deployed the military on the street. And for the first time in Zimbabwe, the military openly fired live rounds at unarmed citizens and people were shot right in front of international media. It was one of the most shocking sights that the world had seen. And we knew at that very point that this had just this movie had just gotten worse. And so January of 2019, we revived the citizens' movement and we began to protest again concerning the misgovernance, the injustice that this new president had brought in. And that led to us inspiring another protest where we called the entire country to a complete standstill again, as we had done in 2016. And the nation heeded the call. The response this time was different from what Robert Mugabe did. Emerson Munangago, the new president, deployed the military, went into homes and bashed down doors and pulled out men and boys and beat them for having participated in this protest. I was arrested on January 16, 2019, in the early hours of the morning in my home. They had tried to abduct me uh, at about 2 a.m. Four armed men with kind of ski masks uh, had come to the house and tried to gain entry, but they couldn't. They beat up the security guard at the complex where I lived, and uh, he left. And then about 18 armed riot police officers then arrived at about five in the morning. My house was surrounded. I was eventually taken from my home. I gave myself up and I was taken right back to Chikarubi Maximum Security Prison, where that whole cycle of torture that I had experienced in 2017 repeated itself. And it was a very, very difficult moment. And so Eventually, I um, endured a whole year of trial. The states, the government would not allow the case to go to trial. They continued to say that they were not ready and they were still gathering evidence. I spent a couple of weeks in prison again and then was out on bail. Eventually, at the end of 2019, December 2019, my lawyers were able to argue that the state had delayed for long enough and I was to be released under the deal that the government could then resume the case as soon as they had enough evidence. They agreed to that, and as soon as I got my passport, I did not waste any time. I left Zimbabwe to rejoin my family, and at this point, I hadn't seen my family in three years. And it was um, a bittersweet moment because you, you realize what you have put on the line for what you do not yet have. You have spent all this time, you have come close to death, you have been bruised and brutalized, and still you don't feel like you have achieved what you needed to achieve. But I think that when I look back on it, it was worth it. Zimbabwe today has many more voices in the space that we've created. Many more protests have happened. There's bigger spotlight that's been shone on Zimbabwe and the 
issues that the nation has. And I'm thankful and excited that I live to tell the story and that I continue to be able to help not just Zimbabwe, but I think to help democracy uh, you know, in other places as well. Wow. You know, Yvonne, you and I have known each other for a little while now. I don't think I've ever heard you actually tell your story in this level of detail. You've been through more than what any person really should have to go through. But despite all of that, somehow you are one of the sort of single most cheerful, optimistic people I know. How do you maintain your optimism? How, how do you maintain your resilience in the face of everything you've gone through? You know, the realization for me and, you know, throughout the time that I've known you and many other people I've met along this road and this journey, the realization is that there are people that have not lived to tell the story. The gift that I have is to have survived all of this. And I feel like it's such a waste of an experience to come to the end of it and just quit and be sad about it. I think there's so much to unpack in this journey. There's so much to expose. There's so much to learn. There's so much to do from it to say, okay, what else do we then do? This is what we learned. This is what we saw. You know, there's a young man whom I will always mention in as many interviews as I can. And he was a journalist who started a one-man protest in Harare exactly one year before I began. March 2015, this young man, his name was Itai Zamara. He stood in the square, the town square of Harare with a signpost that said, failed Robert Mugabe must go. Within weeks, in fact, it was less than, than weeks, Itai was picked up from a barbershop by four armed men where he was having a haircut. And up to today, Itai has not been seen or heard from. He left his wife and his two children. Nobody knows where he is. And so I think about surviving what I went through. And rather than look at it as being unlucky or look at it as being horrible and sad, which it is, I look at it as being an experience of a lifetime that we can use to dismantle these evil forces that think they can do things like that to other people. And so always, for me, that's the best way to go forward with it. The scars are a reminder not of how close I came to death, but they're a reminder of how I survived and how I continue to survive as well. What advice would you have for people in, whether it's free countries or other unfree countries, people who might be losing hope? people who might feel like they don't actually have the will, the wherewithal to go on? What would you say to them? I think people will be surprised at what is inside of them when they step up. And here's the thing that hardship, and in particular the hardship brought about by oppression does to people. It makes you believe that you are powerless. It makes you believe that you cannot do anything about the situation that you are in. Makes you believe that the only thing you can do is take it. The only thing that you can do is accept it, which is not true. This is what I discovered, Uriel. I was a pastor of a small church, a church of less than 60 people. That's a very small church in Zimbabwe. Nobody knew who I was. But from that moment in April 2016, in just a couple of months, we had moved the entire nation 
to believe that we can do something about it. And so if you're asking me, what would I say? I would say step up. I would say never doubt, never ever doubt. In fact, you cannot let the people oppressing you define who you are because they always want to define you within the bounds of what you are not allowed to do. Change the rules, set your own rules. Decide this is what we will do. Will it cost Uriel? Yes. Yes, it will cost. Nothing that is of value costs nothing. Freedom costs. Wow. I want to take a bit of a step back to the beginning of your story. You started your movement with a video about the Zimbabwean flag. Mm -hmm. That's a really interesting choice, right? I mean, dictators, wannabe authoritarians, often try to co-opt symbols of patriotism, a nation's flag. What role do you think that these symbols can play in building a movement, right? Whether on the part of a dictator or on the part of a movement like yours, which you literally named hashtag this flag? That's a really, really powerful question to ask because for us, it became the central element of the power of our movement. And we stumbled upon it, by the way, by complete accident. Because in that first video that I made, I happened to have the Zimbabwean flag in my office. And that video, by the way, was unscripted. And so I just grabbed the Zimbabwean flag. And as I was speaking, I realized suddenly that, wait, they teach us about the Zimbabwean flag when we grow up in primary school, about what each of the colors mean. And one of the things I realized as I recorded that video was that they, and when I say they, I'm talking about our liberators, who eventually became our oppressors, which is a really sad story that you go from being a liberator of people to being an oppressor of the same people. But they had taken that flag and they had made it their exclusive right to own. It was only for them. They had taken the country and they had made it their own. So in essence, what we did when I then began to speak about this flag and the promise that it has and the meaning that it has, what I was saying to Zimbabweans was that this is a promise that was made by those who went to the war of liberation for every Zimbabwean. Therefore, we have a choice to make. Either we give it up and let them have it, or we fight for it and say, it's not yours alone, it's ours. And what we did by then having the Zimbabwean flag as the symbol of our movement is that we literally appropriated a national symbol and we turned it into a symbol of resistance. And what was beautiful about this, Uriel, was that there came a point where the government was so frustrated with the fact that the national flag was being used as a message and as a symbol of resistance, that they banned the Zimbabwean flag in Zimbabwe. Wait, they banned it from public? Like they took down the flags from schools and, and so forth? What they did is that they suddenly enacted a law that said it is illegal for you to buy or sell a flag uh, <laughs> from anyone who is not authorized to sell a flag to you. And that it is illegal for you to move around with the flag around your neck or, you know, tied around your bag or anything, because that's what we were doing. And they started talking about you're disrespecting the flag, so you're not allowed to do it. 
And it was a beautiful moment for us in Zimbabwe because the moment they did that, it was a signal that we were winning, that we were having an effect and having an impact. And of course, it only caused the ownership of the flag by citizens to become even deeper. Even more people went to buy flags and find flags you know, that they could have with them as part of the protest. Because then it became something more powerful than what it was, right? I mean, oh, it, it yes. didn't just become this pro forma symbol. I mean, <laughs> by banning it, they actually made it more of a symbol than it was before. Oh, yeah, they did. They did. And I think what riled them most was what the appropriation of that flag symbolized. It almost was like a signal from us of what we were trying to do. We were saying to them, we are taking back our freedom. We're taking back our prosperity. We're taking back our peace. We're taking back our future. You can't own it. We want it back, you know? And I remember when we started, some, a lot of Zimbabweans were skeptical about this idea of using the Zimbabwean flag because the Zimbabwean flag and the flag of the party, the ruling party in Zimbabwe, are actually quite similar. And so a lot of people had very mixed feelings about this idea of appropriating the Zimbabwe flag, but it worked beautifully because it galvanized Zimbabweans from everywhere. We were able to rally together across race lines, across age lines, across income lines, across the lines of those who are in Zimbabwe and those in the diaspora. There was a unique unity around our flag and restoring the dignity of our flag. Let me just highlight that. The fact that Zimbabweans would travel abroad and felt like they were an embarrassment was enough for people to say, I want to restore the dignity of being a Zimbabwean again. I love that thought. The idea of the importance of restoring the dignity of being a part of a nation, of a community, mm. of a people. But I want to take kind of a little bit of an additional step back. It seems like you have a really unique relationship with the idea of freedom, right? Mm. I mean, this is something that you went to prison for, you were tortured for. Most people, myself included, have never had to risk our own skins for freedom, right? I mean, I run RDI from the safety of my apartment in New York. But I actually think that the concept of freedom isn't really as well understood as maybe it should be, right? I mean, people use it to mean whatever they want it to mean. Politicians, obviously, I mean, use and abuse the word to no end. So what does it mean to you? You know, most people don't understand what freedom is, you know, until they lose it. And I think for me, you have to understand, because of the journey that I've walked, I think about the value of freedom literally all the time. And that's because I come from a place where freedom was, you know, was taken away from me. I also often think about the kind of person you become when you have lived under oppression all your life, people don't actually understand that it makes you into a type of person. And sometimes you are more pessimistic than you are optimistic. Sometimes you are more dejected than you are excited. And sometimes you exclude yourself from certain things that you should be participating uh, because you really don't feel like you are worthy of you know participating in those in those things. But I, I, I think about the hopes, the dreams, and the aspirations that I will never see because of the freedom that the dictators I've lived under deprived me of. If you're looking for a definition, or my definition maybe, of what freedom is, I think that freedom is having the inalienable right to be a contributor to the well-being 
of your society without the fear of being vilified for it. It is having the right and the platforms to hold each other, including the powerful, to account. And so if there's anything that I understand, especially from being in a place like America, for, for, but especially from being in the free world, it is the value of living in freedom. And I think what I see is what you just said earlier on. Most people who live in free societies don't understand what they have. And because they don't understand what they have, they don't make an effort to actually protect it. If I was to give you an analogy, it would be this, that the best way to explain it is this. You don't understand what hunger is when you're on a full stomach, but you fully would understand what food is when you haven't eaten for days. Mm, That's a really powerful way of thinking about it. And, you know, it actually goes to, I think, one of the key ideas that we've been working on at RDI and, and that, you know, I think has really underpinned a lot of our projects, which, you know, is that dissidents like you have this really unique perspective that can help people who are born and raised in free societies better understand their own democracies and the threats that are facing them. This is what led us to launch Frontlines of Freedom, right, in partnership with CNN. Also, the first time that you and I met was kind of as part of this project. You know, I wonder if you can tell us a bit more on what led you to joining the Frontlines of Freedom project, to kind of starting this relationship with RDI, and the role that you've seen yourself play. The Frontlines of Freedom initiative in my view, was a really, really great idea that brought together dissidents or advocates for democracy from around the world to tell their stories and their experiences as they defied authoritarian rule. And the idea behind Frontlines of Freedom, when we did the program at the time, you know, the different video recordings we did and the stories we told, even as it was aired on CNN, the idea was to bring a first-hand understanding to American citizens and citizens of the free world to understand what it is like to live completely without democracy or to live where democracy is being strangled. And I think the idea is to bring a reality that authoritarianism is not a myth somewhere or it's not something far away uh, you know, from people in the free world, but that it exists and is possible if people do not do the kind of things that we did where we come from. Sometimes I love to explain it this way. I love to say to people, when I watch people in the free world, the way they handle their freedom, I like to say to them, the kind of script you're writing, I've seen this before. I've seen the way the movie ends and you don't want to experience it. You don't want to be an actor in the way this thing ends because I've been there. I've lived that. I've lived through that. And I think this is what Frontlines of Freedom, you know, was doing and continues to do is that it's about bringing a reality. The idea is to create a sense of urgency in protecting freedom and democracy in nations like America that have modeled democracy for the world to say, don't lose it, don't fumble it. You know, I think that's exactly what's missing right now from so much of the American conversation around democracy is this sense of urgency. The idea that what we have is something that is absolutely critical to protect and expand upon. And that we can't just, you know, get rid of it wholesale. That we can't blow it up and hope that whatever we create from scratch will somehow be better. Because 
Unfortunately, most of the time, it's not. And therefore, kind of conveying to folks both the flaws and the weaknesses of our democracies, but also their strengths and the unique things that they have to offer, not just to our own societies, but to the world at large, is something that you know, I think dissidents are really uniquely positioned to do. I kind of think of RDI's Freedom Fellows, of all the folks that we've worked with in this world as kind of like antibodies who are in such a strong position to prevent us from going down the path or, you know, from acquiring the disease of authoritarianism. Mm-hmm. You know, and obviously that's kind of why our current partnership with you as our director of education is something that I'm I'm so excited about. As we strive to kind of convey this message more broadly, what is it that you want to achieve, right? Like when you think about leveraging your story, your experiences to helping the cause of democracy writ large, what do you want to be doing? What do you want to see happen? I think, first of all, I love the idea of leveraging the experiences, that uh, phrase that you just used. Joining RDI for me as director for education is very much in line with the continuation of my work, or at least my desire to defend and support democracy globally. Embarking on this journey, starting off in my small office in Harare, Zimbabwe, going through everything I've gone through, representing Zimbabwe on the global stage. And I've had so many opportunities to be at Human Rights Foundation, Oslo Freedom Forum, Geneva Summit for Human Rights and Democracy. So many platforms, the United Nations has made me realize, has made me realize the importance of the global fight for democracy. So my role at Renew Democracy Initiative as Director for Education is going to be focusing on the Frontlines of Freedom program and take it from where it has begun as a gathering of dissident voices that are speaking about the reality of authoritarianism and grow it to a place where it becomes a unique series of content and courses for university students, for the publics in the free world, for them to understand democracy, the basics of democracy, to understand its value to the rest of our world and how each of us must find our place in defending it, that we cannot leave the defense of democracy to just civic society, formal civic society. We can't just leave it to the politicians and those who are contesting for our votes. We have got to be a part of the process. And here's the unique offering of the Frontlines of Freedom series of courses and content. It is going to be the involvement of some of the most prominent voices of democracy defense from around the world. I'm talking about people like Masi Alinejad from Iran, whom I stand in awe of what that woman has achieved for freedom in Iran. Uh, Leopoldo Lopez, who I met, and his story of being imprisoned, his story of organizing and protesting in in Venezuela and how Maduro treated him. I think about Gary Kasparov, the legendary uh, chess champion who lent his fame to the issue of democracy and bringing all these voices together to sound the alarm, bringing all these voices together to bring hope. And that's an important aspect of why I'm joining RDI, by the way, Uriel is that 
our fight for democracy, I believe, has got to be couched in hope, in the belief that we are winning, we will win. It may seem small, it may seem insignificant, but the understanding that if we support fledgling programs to support democracy, eventually it adds up and it becomes something that gives us a great harvest of freedom, as I like to call it. And so leading a Frontlines of Freedom podcast as well, that's going to focus on inspiring listeners to believe in the hope of democracy and why they must continue to believe in it and act in its favor. So Yvonne buried the lead there a little bit, which is that we're going to be launching a new podcast, which, as Yvonne mentioned, will really sort of strive to be this inspirational, hopeful element, which as you've all heard, despite Yvonne's just completely tragic, but at the same time, inspiring story, you know, he's going to be in a position to help us help folks in the free world recognize what it is that we have and what we can do to defend it. And so with respect to sort of uh, historical and political education, there's been a fair bit of controversy in the U.S. around it. Right. I mean, we've had the 1619 Project, which claimed that the U.S. was fundamentally oppressive, as well as Trump's 1776 Commission, which essentially claimed the opposite, that the U.S. was basically flawless. Now, obviously, we're taking a different approach. Now, I want to ask you something that will probably be controversial in your world. You've gone from being a pro-democracy activist in Zimbabwe essentially to being kind of this pro-democracy activist in the world writ large. And now that, you know, you're doing this work, how do you respond to people who say that American democracy isn't a good role model or that it's too flawed, uh, too oppressive to be a model for other countries? Firstly, let's understand that there is no perfect democracy in existence. But from my perspective, they are good models that despite very real challenges, they still exist, they still thrive. And they exist because in those societies, there is a respect for the fundamentals of a free society. I'm talking about human rights, I'm talking about the rule of law and the checks and balances of a democratic nation. And so as flawed as American democracy may be, like any other nation's democracy that has flaws, this democracy has it has been one that many people, including myself, have admired and we have pointed to as a model. And in my conversations, when people hear me talk about strengthening or supporting American democracy or democracy, uh, liberal democracy in the free world and supporting it and strengthening it, you know, I hear people say, well, you know, American democracy is much too evil. It's one of the things that you've just said, you know, the 1619 project. And of course, you know, the 1776 uh, situation comes in to, to say something else. The question I always ask people when they say American democracy is much too evil, I ask as compared to what? As compared mm. to which other model that has been a consistent beacon and supporter of freedom? There are people today that will tell you in Africa where I come from, When I compare it to my nation, Zimbabwe, I can tell you that this is a beacon of democracy that we have admired. When I compare it to what, China, to Russia, to Iran, to Venezuela, Belarus, Hungary, I see a better model, which is worth strengthening. And here's the kicker. It's worth strengthening 
so that the opponents of global authoritarianism do not succeed. And I, I want to tie this back to the fact that I see what authoritarianism has done to our people, what dictatorship has done to Zimbabwe, what the dismantling of democracy looks like. So when I see nations that support democracy, when I see nations that, despite their own problems, are still committed to building democracy, I want to be a part of that. I want to help build that so that it can contribute to what's happening in Zimbabwe. But let me introduce something as well in the argument of why I think that people like me should, as, as we continue to fight for our freedoms in Zimbabwe and in Venezuela and in different places, why we should also help to strengthen democracies in places like America. It is this, the fact that one can be in this country, in America, and they can say openly that this democracy is evil and they don't get arrested for it. Uriel, it proves my point. Let me ask you a question, or anyone listening. Would you swap your citizenship in the free world with me and go and live in Zimbabwe and do what I did after the story I've just told you? You wouldn't do it. I come from a country where simply saying Zimbabwe's democracy is evil will land you in prison and where you're charged with treason. So. I'm fighting for global democracy. And that means lending my voice to strengthen democracy in places where it still has a chance. Because if it thrives here, then it is a model for how it can thrive in my beloved nation of Zimbabwe. The thing our dictators love to do is they love to compare the flaws, you know, the flaws found in mm. democracy in the free world with their own records of destroying democracy. It makes them feel better. And more than that, it emboldens them to oppress us in our countries. So that's why it is in my best interest and in the best interest of everyone everywhere to support democracy where it still exists. So to wholly condemn the democracies that still work in this world today is essentially gifting dictators with a past to brutalize people in our own countries. I could not agree more. I mean, my God, I've lost count of the number of folks that I've mentioned this to that, you know, by saying that America is one of the most evil countries in the world or does so much harm, et cetera. I mean, it's a literal gift to dictators, right? It oh, allows yes. them to say, hey, what we're doing is fine. Everyone else is doing it too. We're no better or worse mm -hmm. than anyone else. Oh, yeah. They actually say to us, the people that you are pointing to as being the models for democracy are worse than us. You know, when they hear people who say, no, you know, America is evil or the West is evil or, you know, this nation that is a proponent, proponent of democracy is evil. Our dictators look at us and they say, you are on your own, Ivan. You're on your own and we're going to crush you because they are as bad as anything. So I don't know. I, I think for me, it's one of those situations where people have to understand that we cannot throw out the baby with the bathwater. I think there is a point at which we must understand that all democracies are a work in progress and that the ones that still exist or the ones that still lend themselves to genuinely wanting to be democracies are valuable, not just to Americans, not just to Westerners, but to the whole world. I think that's exactly what's missing from so much of this conversation around democracy. I mean, you pointed something out that I think is so critical, that dictators will turn to the dissidents in their own countries, and, and this is true everywhere. 
right? This is true in Zimbabwe. It's true in Russia. It's true in China. And they will say to their people, you're alone. You do not have a chance against Mm. our machinery, against our military might and political might. And nobody out there can come to help you. And, you know, if you look to countries like the U.S. and, you know, other free nations, well, as a matter of fact, they're just as bad or even worse. But what's ironic in all of this is that as they're saying that, as they're telling you that you're alone, they themselves are working with other dictators, Mm. right? There's this element of, you know, what we can call networked authoritarianism, Mm -hmm. where dictators can support one another in order to defend the very idea of dictatorship as a legitimate form of government, right? I mean, before Putin invaded Ukraine, he first sent troops into Belarus in order to put down protests and support the existing dictator, Lukashenko. He did the same thing in Kazakhstan, sending in troops supporting the dictator Tokayev. So as we struggle with that, I mean, that's a real thing. In Belarus, I I think it's very likely that Lukashenko, in fact, I think it's almost certain that Lukashenko would have fallen if the people had not been suppressed by a foreign power, by a foreign dictator. So with dictators building up this network where they support one another, what do you think we can do from the free world to combat them? The first thing that is important for me to mention is that the idea of networked authoritarianism or authoritarian regimes working together and becoming intentional is not a myth, it's real. And it's been happening for longer than most of us actually realized. And I want to mention something here. In the current attack of Ukraine, I've spoken out. I stood on the stairs of the Lincoln Memorial together in solidarity with Ukrainian nationals. Uh, You were there as well, Uriel, together. We stood and we condemned the attacks. We condemned the attack on freedom, on democracy. And we called the world to come in and help Ukraine. I've been vilified by fellow Africans for doing that. And I think it shows me how a lot of us don't understand what is actually going on globally. This is not just about Ukraine. Ukraine, if anything, has inspired us as they have withstood this attack on their democracy, this attack on their freedom. And some of my African brothers and sisters have said to me, you shouldn't be up there because it's none of our business. We should stand aside and let them deal with it. This is bigger than Ukraine. This is the continuation of a very intentional collaboration of global authoritarianism, which is why I am concerned. Besides the fact that I am concerned about the killing of innocent citizens. I don't care what color they are. I don't care what nation they are. When you start bombing children, when you start killing people the way that we've seen happen in Ukraine, whether or not you like Ukraine or whether or not you like the East or the West or whatever, you condemn that because it takes away life and it takes away the dignity of being a human being. So the immediate result of what's happening in Ukraine and this network of authoritarian regimes is that democracy is coming under attack even in our own African nations. 
for example, just watching the vote on Russia suspension from the United Nations Human Rights Council should tell us the story of which nations are connected to Putin's idea of dismantling democracy. You will see when you look at that list of the nations that either abstained or the nations that voted for Russia to stay, that it is the nations where democracy either does not exist or is under threat. This is not a happenstance. It's a play. It's happening. So it is time for those of us, when you ask, so what do we do? It is time for those of us who support democracy to also unashamedly unite and do all we can to protect global freedom. One of my close friends that I met as I got onto this journey of defending democracy is a man by the name Vladimir Karamutsa. And he's an amazing voice. He worked with uh, Boris Nemtsov, who was assassinated, essentially. And Vladimir is a fierce critic of the Putin regime. He's a fierce defender of democracy and supporter of democracy in Russia. And he lives in Russia. And a couple of days ago, they picked him up because he got onto CNN or he was on TV and he called the war a war and called Putin out and said he must stop. That's what we need to do is to stand together and say we can't have this. Because if we don't, if we don't, what we are doing is allowing these authoritarian regimes, these autocrats, we are giving them a pass and we're saying it's okay for you to do what you're doing. So this is a time where there's no middle ground as far as I'm concerned. To remain silent or to abstain from condemning attacks on freedom is essentially a vote for the attackers and the spread of authoritarianism elsewhere. That's what it is. So Ivan, I'd like to give you the final word here. What would you say to folks living in free countries folks living in countries that are striving to be free as we continue the fight. Each generation, Uriel, has a duty to play. And that is to either encourage the freedom of humanity or to send it to the gallows of brutality and barbarism with our voices, just like I did in Zimbabwe. Each of us can shape our world to be that much freer to be that much more democratic and essentially to be that much more a place where our children can believe in the triumph of good over evil and indeed become all that they can because that's what we tell our children, that you can become anything that you want to be. They can only ever become whatever they want to be when they live in a free society. And that's the gift that democracy gives us. It gives us freedom. And it gives us the opportunity to become all that we imagine to become. And with that, thank you, Yvonne. That was absolutely incredible. Thank you for joining us. And I'm incredibly excited to continue working with you. And thank all of you for listening to this episode of Winter is Here, brought to you by the Renew Democracy Initiative and Substack. At RDI, we are committed to pulling American democracy back from the brink and restoring its place as a global beacon for freedom. If you'd like to support the show, please subscribe for free in your podcast player and share the episode with a friend or become an RDI subscriber at rdi.org. Thank you.